Professor uh, Dr. Esau McCulley, who has written a book called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And the whole premise of the book is to explain why it is important to allow the African-American voice to have a center stage in biblical interpretation, but not just only to listen to the African-American voice, but to make room for people of different ethnic backgrounds to bring their lens, which we all have a lens, to biblical interpretation and to allow scripture to speak to all of the various issues that we find uh, in our communities. So we were able to interview him on his book, a book that I highly, highly recommend. I was, when I was reading it, it just spoke to my story so much. But uh, just to tell you a little bit more about who Esau McCulley is, uh, he is uh, assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, uh, a priest in the Anglican Church in North America, and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. His publications include Sharing in the Son's Inheritance and numerous articles in outlets such as Christianity Today, The Witness, and the Washington Post. So his brother is very insightful. Uh, I think that, you know, he is emerging as one of the leading theologians in America, in my opinion. Um, and I, I'm really looking forward to just uh, how he will, God will use him to continue to speak uh, to a lot of the issues he brings up. Uh, in this book. So just just by way of how the book f formats itself, we don't get a chance to get into everything in the book because the book talks about method for the first few chapters, but then he actually starts dealing with individual issues in each chapter. Um, and a lot of those issues are relevant to, yeah, to minorities, the African-American community. And each one of those issues literally could be a podcast in and of itself. But we kind of have a broader discussion on just the importance of the method in which he tries to present, which is the need to have people from different backgrounds speaking uh, as God gives illumination, you know, from the text of Scripture. So I just want to really, you know, ask this question, Clay, what are you what are you hoping that our listeners will get from this interview? Um, I, I, I'm in a place where I am. I'm, I'm taking a real critical look at 
my at my faith, right? Not necessarily my faith, but how I interact with my faith. Because as I look out and I see things coming from the, the Christian church and things that really rub up against me as a black man, I've 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 been trying to shed some of that American evangelicalism identity. And there's a fine line between doing that and, and kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so what I hope anybody who listens to this um, is encouraged to know that the Bible is for you as a black person. The Bible is for you as a black person going through your pain right now. Um, Christ is for you, um, regardless of the context of how you got to him. Uh, and so I just hope it's an encouragement uh, to all you, those who might feel like Christianity is a white person's religion. Um, it's not, it's the world's religion because it's, it's all about Christ. And, and that's what I think uh, we, we get out of this interview. Uh, at least that's my hope for, for those who are listening. Yeah. For me. No, 100%. You know, I 100% agree. And for me, what I'm hoping is people, it, this leads people to pick up his book because I think that he not only presents this methodology of the importance of, you know, um, African-Americans doing biblical interpretation, but the book goes through it. And for me, I think that this is a much needed uh, book that shows the validity. And we didn't need to be, you know, we don't need approval from other people because I think as Yusuf McCulley says during this interview, like, listen, they look down on black biblical interpretation, but historically, We've been right on a lot of things that these so-called white evangelical scholars were not right on. But I think it does show, you know, from somebody who is highly educated, the need to approach the scriptures with questions in mind that a lot of people are wrestling with and to do so from a position of submission to the scriptures. Right. And so. I, I, there's so much to take from this interview, but my hope is that people go that extra step and read the book because the book just has so, so much gold in it. So, yeah, we're really excited for this interview. We hope that you guys tune in. Keep it locked. This You are now listening to the City Image Podcast. What is up, family? It's Brian, the Theological Giant. I just want to thank all of you for listening to the City Image Podcast. Your continued support gives us the ability to produce faith-based content that is relevant to the urban context. If you haven't already, subscribe to City Image so that you won't miss any of our episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast on every major platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast helps us grow our audience. Also, if you've been blessed by our work, please consider sharing our content with friends and on social media. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The City Image and make sure to like the City Image Facebook page as well. Lastly, feel free to email any feedback, thoughts, and comments on any of our episodes at cityimagepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Welcome back. Welcome back to the City Image Podcast again. Dr. McCulley, thank you for being with us. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. 
The book is called Reading While Black, Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Um, And I would highly, highly, highly recommend this book. Like so much of what you said, man, really resonated with me. Um, Somebody who, you know, was uh, not really brought up in the church, but kind of had my first church experience in, in a black church environment, but then being educated, you know, I went to Westminster Theological Seminary and being educated in really evangelical spaces, but but then kind of being in that black church experience still kind of at the same time trying to figure out where does all of this fit, you know, with, with some of the justice issues that I was seeing kind of repeatedly brought up in my context, but being educated in a space that didn't really want to talk about a lot of those issues. So I felt a lot of your story and what you were articulating in the book. Um, but before we go any further, uh, I wanted to just ask this you know, question um, because the book basically, uh, it, I, maybe you, the way that I would say the premise of the book is, is it's the importance of uh, biblical interpretation uh, from an African-American perspective, but you would also say probably even from from different ethnic backgrounds needing yes. to kind of have their own uh, cultural experiences inform biblical interpretation. Would you, would you agree with that, Assess, how I characterize you, you that? Got, you got about 90% there. I okay. would say that everybody, I mean, what I'm saying is nobody comes to the text without their experiences. True. I, I, the only way that I can read the Bible is as a black man. Mm-hmm. And let me give you, like, I try to give people analogies so they can understand because this feels more controversial than it actually is. Anybody who's moved from, like, the, like, the country to the city, that's what we would say in Alabama, right? You move into the city from the country. You recognize that, like, once you're living in an urban environment, you, your context changes. In a sermon that you might preach in a rural area, and then you move to the city and you're preaching that same text, but you're asking yourself, well, how does this, how does this sermon affect someone who's living in, and working and trying to make sense of life in New York City? And the moment you begin to ask yourself that question, because your frame of reference changes, there are things in the text that you might not have noticed that you might say, oh, man. I see how this applies directly to single people. Oh man, I see how this applies directly to um, married couples. Well, I see how this might um, help help a college student in a particular way. Now, it's not that the text itself changed. It's right. just that putting on that lens helps you miss nuances of the text that you didn't see. Yeah. Now, it's so then if you're saying that the community that I'm looking at influences how I what I see in the text then it also stands to reason that my questions that I bring to the text also help me see particular insights. Now, that's going to be a positive and a negative, right? Because it's also going to screen out things that I might not have considered. So that things that as a man, when I'm looking at the text, I'm not even thinking about how this, and this is what I have to learn in my own preaching. I'm going to think about how this text applies to a single woman and how this might influence her life. But she yeah. comes to the text, she brings me stuff. And so when I talk about socially located interpretation, I'm talking about the fact that African-Americans bring the entirety of who they are to the interpretive process during which they're trying to figure out what God would have them do. So, of course, someone who is white and who, who has a different set of experiences are going to ask a different set of questions and have a different set of answers, which is why you can have two pastors, 
reading the same text, preaching to different communities and have different sermons. Hmm. So imagine this. Imagine you have Ephesians chapter 2 and you're preaching to a Jim Crow congregation that is segregated in Alabama in 1952. Now you take that same text and the black pastor living under Jim Crow is trying to preach that text to the congregation. You don't think he's going to ask different questions of this text? Mm -hmm. You think that's going to help him illuminate aspects of this text and apply it? And do you not know, and every pastor, anyone who's ever been in a church, who's ever given a talk, was like, man, I see this in the text, but I know I can't say it, because if I say it, it's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Because you, when you're a preacher, you're trying to do that, like, how much can my congregation take yeah. of this yeah. text? Yeah. And so that negotiation then is all the ways in which the community places limits upon you. And some people are brave. They'll just straight up preach. They don't care, but other people don't. And so all I'm trying to say is, Reading While Black is an affirmation of the fact that Black questions are themselves worthy of consideration, right? Mm-hmm. And it is, it is also okay to have the Black community at the center of the interpretive enterprise. Mm-hmm. So one, and one of the things, I don't have any pastors to listen to the podcast, but like when you preach in your head, who, like, who do you imagine is in the room? Hmm. Do you think, like, how is this sermon going to land with a 22-year-old black guy who just graduated from Morehouse? Or do you think, how is this sermon going to land with a, with a 19-year-old girl who just graduated from Messiah College? And yeah. so it's all about appreciating like how these things influence us in the interpretive process. That's, that's what the book is about. And it's saying that like historically when African-Americans have turned to the text and brought black questions to the text, they mm-hmm. found in the text, a God who is a friend and not an enemy. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's real. And I think, again, reflecting on my own seminary experience and, you know, not to, not trying to speak badly about where I was educated because maybe it was just me. Um, But I feel like what I, the way I approached biblical interpretation was very logical. And what we were trying to do was this is the meaning of the text. And we just want to communicate that. And it, it, it felt weird to have application, you know, where it was not necessarily you know, finding ways to apply text to particular contexts yeah. was not an exercise that we participated in. Yeah. It was basically like, here's the meaning of this text. And what I felt was lacking in that was we were asking these questions about justice or, or you know, questions that were being uh, raised in my community, or maybe another community is asking different questions. And and when you stop that, here's what, you know, Paul or whoever, whatever author was trying to get at, you know, we, we it, it left exercising the muscle of application to a wide variety of issues sort of underdeveloped, right? And I think what, you, what yeah. I saw from that was a lot of frustration because I just... We weren't getting answers to questions or what we, what we were getting were, you know, questions that white evangelicals felt like they needed to answer. That, that was being sort of applied. You know, we were yeah. applying the text to that, but other issues weren't just weren't there. 
What I want to say is that Paul thought that the scriptures were a word to lead the gap. And that Paul thought that the scriptures of the Old Testament referred directly to what was going on in the lives of his congregation. Yeah, and anybody sure. who preaches weekly assumes that a Bible written in the first century has direct relevance for, for, what it, for what it means for us to live as Christians today. But more than that, I want to talk about like method, method. And, and this is, I talk about this in the book. I talk about something that, that should not be controversial, but I talk about African-American the, um, biblical interpretation as canonical. And what I say as, when I say canonical, I mean, we try to take the whole entire canon seriously. Right. What I was trying to say is there, there is, it causes a distortion whenever there's a myopic um, emphasis on just a paragraph. And when I talk about canonical exegesis, obviously this isn't unique to the African-American context. Everybody does it. But here's the thing that makes the canonical tradition particularly important in the African-American context, because we were given a myopic understanding of slavery, right? So the only thing that are relevant is like 1 Timothy 6, 1 to 3. And we said, well, hold on for a second. There's also this idea in the Bible called the Exodus, where God liberates people from slavery. And there are all the discussions about God's concern for the poor and the needy and the marginalized that emerged from the reading of the wider canonical witness. There's also the emphasis on neighborly love that we see in the Christian tradition. And so what you see is not something that only someone with black skin can do, but the particular experiences of black people being forced to the hermeneutic, being given a hermeneutical um, emphasis, hermeneutical method where the, this one passage was the only thing we should consider, we brought in the wider canonical witness as a way to counter myopic readings to the Bible. And so when I say the black interpretive tradition is canonical, I'm not just talking about application. I'm talking about method. And then when you begin to ask yourself, well, do we then see still in our current context, sometimes myopic um, focus on passages, right? So when you talk about something like, yes, the, the, the mission of the church is to preach the gospel. That's true. But we also want to say, well, Jesus himself preached about the kingdom of God, right? And in Jesus alone preaching about the kingdom of God, it involved concern of the poor and needy. So when you focus on some Pauline theological ideas like justification to the exclusion of Jesus and his emphasis on the kingdom, then you're also not engaging a canonical exegesis. And so when I talk about the African-American canonical instinct, I talk about a habit a Bible reading where the whole of the scripture presses on what it means to be a human. And, and, and that informs our, our witness in, in our interpretation of individual passages versus I'm just going to use sometimes a very small focus on a particular section as a means of avoiding a, addressing the issues of the day. Right. So would you say then that if we fail to just, you know, adequately hear people from different backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, um, bringing their voices to the text, we will inevitably not see everything we're meant to see. Is that, is that a fair statement? Do you feel like, or, or we will miss certain nuances in the text? I think, I think that it is possible. I think that we need one another. Okay. The reason that you, re why, like, here's the question. Why do you read theology? Why do you read yeah. books? You read books because you feel like, hey, this person has wisdom that I lack. Facts. So anytime you're closed off from the wider Christian community, then you're probably going to miss something. So I don't want to make it seem, this is the important part, black people aren't magical. Right. right? It's not that we're above exegetical error, 
What I'm saying is I think that historically our exegetical insights have not been taken seriously in the church in the academy, in the wider church, and that I think that the church is lacking because of that. And in the same way, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to be stereotypical, but I, I was attending a Korean church, like I mean, Korean Presbyterian church. I was ministering with to, um, a bunch of Korean students, and I was introduced to the to the strong tradition of prayer that existed in that community. And mm-hmm. so, like the early morning prayer services that happened in a Korean context were not native to my African American context. And when I heard about that, that enriched my own spiritual life. Mm. Right. When I heard about the about the Chinese house church movement, that enriched my spiritual life. When I heard about Celtic spirituality and the Book of Common Prayer, that enriched my spiritual life. And so the idea that we don't need one another, that we're competent to live as Christians without like Christians globally and across cultures, to me is myopic. And yes, there are plenty of times where I feel like people have helped me to see things that I didn't see. And I might be able to help people see things that they didn't see. But it doesn't mean that if you're not black, you can't see what I see, right? That only black people can talk about the kingdom. Only black people can talk about liberation. But Mm -hmm. these are our distinctive gifts that we have because of our experiences that we're offering to the church. So I do think that we need each other. And I think we can affirm that need without making our ethnicity magical. No, that's real good. Uh, You know, I I was with uh, uh, Toby Max drummer once he was at a conference and 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 he was speaking um and he said something that I, I still carry with me today it was kind of a kind of a theological leap but i'll take it like i'll die on that because <laughs> it sounds good <laughs> but he was like if 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 man was made in god's image but we've got all these different people groups all over the world who does god look like yeah. and 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 he paused on that question and let people kind of be uncomfortable he goes, I think God looks like a tapestry. When we are united, when we are together, when we are learning from each other, we are counting each other as equal. Your culture is not better than my culture. Your, your context is not better than my context. And I appreciate that. And I can take from that. Then you start to see the image of God. And, and as you speak, I'm listening. I'm like, yeah, I got a lot from my context in the Chinese church, my context yeah. as a black man. In this yeah. country, I got a lot from my context in a white evangelical system. Um, and I think it's important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater yeah. when there's something that you disagree with. But when you can take the things that you can readily recognize as godly and as truth yeah. and bring them together to start to, to form like a, a, a tapestry. So, yeah. th- I mean... <laughs> I think I want to say, I got to be careful about talking about God having a multicolored body, but that's fine. I'm going to let you live. I'm going to let you live. I'm going to let you live. Don't drag me down that hill. I almost landed it. I got you. 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 He like, look, just to be clear, <laughs> I don't endorse that lead, <laughs> but I understand what you're trying to say. Yeah, I don't no, no, this, 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 is what, this is what I wanted to say. This is what I wanted to say. There's a reason, and we, it's, it's a, it's funny how much this stuff are like facts hiding in plain sight. So when God says to Abraham, he's going to be the father of many nations. And this is the beginning, like the beginning of the, of the narrative of the people of God. I'm going to make you a family of, of, of many different ethnic groups. The God from the beginning 
wanted to be glorified by a variety of people worshiping the one true God. And if that was God's vision, then of course God expected each one of these different cultures and tribes and families to offer their distinctive gifts to God. But the fact that we were united in our worship of him is what makes what he was doing beautiful. And so I agree that I think that we need one another to properly understand. And maybe God designed it that way. That we need one another. That we're incomplete. John writes this letter, um, I think it's first John. He said, what we've seen, what we've touched, what our hands have held, right? This is the one we're proclaiming to you. And he says, we write this so that your joy may be complete. Our joy may be complete. And so John is saying, there's a part of his Christian experience that is incomplete. His joy is, he has Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. He has the source of all joy. But he says, my joy is incomplete until you people in this congregation understand who God is. And so what I want to say is, for me, my joy and experience of Christianity is incomplete without all of my brothers and sisters, without the nations gathered together. This is, what, this, this is what completes my joy, is when I'm with different types of people who, despite our differences, we're united in understanding who God is and trying to worship him. And that's when the Christian community is, 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 is most beautiful. And it seems to be, if we're going to take what, 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 Paul, what, what God said to Abraham seriously, that this seems to be his plans from the beginning to create for himself a people. And of course, if he wanted to create for himself a multi-ethnic people, each individual ethnic group would, in that sense, be valuable. And that's good. What would you say to people? Because I've, I've heard that this is often brought up as a critique of the black church, is that, you know, there's so many ministers who aren't well-educated, they espouse heresy, um, this sort of one-sided judgment of uh, the black church in that leading to the wider question of someone believing, well, you know, I, I don't think I can necessarily, you know, grab truth from other cultures because, you know, so, so, they might not be educated enough. Y'all still use the, I don't know, y'all fancy New York people. Y'all got receipts up there. Y'all know we're talking about pulling receipts. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> okay, then, okay, then, okay, then. Let's be honest now. If we're going to pull receipts, we're going to be honest. During the during from like 1700 to 1800s, the black Christians were abolitionists. The white Christians had a heretical anthropology about what a person was, and they had yep. a hierarchy of people. Start with white people at the top and black people at the bottom, and they interspersed each one of the racial groups in between. Mm. Who was right and who was wrong about what a person was in the 1700s and 1800s? Who was it? Who was <laughs> it? Folk. Okay, then during Jim Crow. During Jim Crow where it was once again rooted in a heretical anthropology. Hmm. When the Christians were, were, were supporting separate but equal and the black Christians were pushing back against it, who was right? Black Christians. Okay, then. During the Civil Rights Movement. Okay. During the Civil Rights Movement. Well, once again, contending for justice in the public square as a manifestation of our Christian witness, who was correct? Hmm. So then, who, so then, and, and now listen, then listen, it doesn't mean there were no white Christians who said this stuff. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying, oh, and don't even get me started on eugenics. Mm. Don't get me started on the theological justification for manifest destiny. There yeah. has been rank history, rank heresy mm -hmm. that have permeated different aspects of the church. So to say that black Christians have no theological, matter of fact, 
do yourselves a favor and Google the AME's doctrinal statement that they put together when they formed their churches. Google the Black Baptist churches. Google, now you don't even got to be Pentecostal. Google the Church of God in Christ. Look at that mm -hmm. confessional statement. It's Pentecostal. It's like, it's like normal Christianity with Pentecostal yeah. distinctives. And yeah. so the idea that there aren't black Christians who have made theologically clear and orthodox confessional statements that were the basis of the fellowship is a slander. Yeah. And the idea that when we look back on history, like standing back from history now, at just about every point where there was a large scale disagreement between the black church and the white, white Christians, we all now side with the black church. Very few yeah. people was like, you know what? We should have kept slavery. You know what? We should have kept Jim Crow. <laughs> Nobody does that. You know what? Eugenics wasn't that bad. So it can't simply, what I'm saying is what we tend to do is we judge African-American Christianity by its lowest moments, and we judge the majority culture by its highest moments. That's so good, bro. And so that's good, bro. Very real. That's so, real, brother. So that's what I, was, what I say is like you have to, and now are there, are there, I mean, I could say a lot more about the black. So let me say a few, a few more things about this. Oftentimes, um, we weren't even allowed into um, higher education. Facts. So what do you mean? Like we could, like there, there are what probably the first African Americans are invited into higher ed in any kind of substantial numbers. And talking about as being professors in the 1960s. <clears throat> So we have, what, 70 years of access to the leisurely reflection upon academic matters and the yeah. construction of theology versus, what, however long the universities existed in the United States? Jeez. So we, and so, so, and then, not only that, not only that, we're just now in a place where the wide variety of African-American expressions are coming into the academy, right? Where you can have like kind of a diversity of opinion. It was so few African-Americans who were in the theological like academy that like a few voices were the only people who you can see. Yeah. Just think about, think about it this way. Name, if you could name all of the African, all of the um, like the, the white Christians from left to right who published books of theology, and since 1960. And then say, you could actually, and then say, well, then let's look and see how many African-Americans have published major works of theology during that same time period. And then let's look at the spectrum that you see. We're still growing as a, as, as a field in African-American Christian context to be able to have like a, a, a more and more robust conversation. Um, we're still coming up. Our heroes, I mean, our, our first generation are still here. Mm. The first black female PhD, I think, in Old Testament is like Renita Williams, and she's still, she still walking the earth. Wow. I ain't even right? think, bro. The first black, the first black New Testament scholars, um, are, I mean, like, like, what I'm saying, like, this isn't like... Yeah. I Hundreds think, of years of... Cain Hofelder, Cain Hofelder was like the godfather of black biblical interpretation. He died a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what are we talking about? That's crazy. I feel no, like... Go ahead, I, Clay. Yeah. 
how often do you just feel like you're 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 hitting your head up against the wall when you can see things objectively and speak on them with authority and being objective and it 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 almost it doesn't matter it doesn't matter we talked you talked earlier about the debate and and just seeing can we just can we just be objective about some of the things that we're seeing here what i would say is my my responsibility is to jesus Mm. um my responsibility is like i'm a child as best as i i'm i'm imperfect I'm i'm a child of the light so i'm responsible for truth goodness, beauty, righteousness, like this is how I'm going to live. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to turn into the very thing that I oppose. Come on, I don't got to get in the mud. I don't got to get in the mud. And so what I want to say is I am not reasonable. I mean, I I could be unreasonable. I mean, because I could be, I could be mistaken, but I don't do, I don't speak and act in such such a way to keep me like in the good graces of like the establishment. I mm-hmm. try to do the best that I can to say, what does God require me of me in this moment? And what does love demand of me to do for my neighbor? Mm-hmm. So even if my neighbor doesn't hear me, then I fulfill my responsibility. So love demands me to tell you the truth. Love demands me to say, this is how I'm experiencing it. Love demands me to say, this is what I think these biblical texts mean for how we live and work in the, in the world. So I'm not focused on the outcome. I'm focused, I'm focused on what God has required of me. And so part of it is, and this is the hard part, part of it is not to allow our frustration with the brokenness of society or even the brokenness of the church to distort and deform who we are. Hmm. And one of the things that happened and one of the advantages or the disadvantages of, like, I, I can put it this way, like, I didn't grow up, like, I grew up in the African-American church context and no, no shade to you, my reform brothers and sisters, but I wasn't at the heart of the kind of the, like, black people into the reform movement and yeah. then who kind of got burned and then who left. Yeah. But I saw the damage that that did to a lot of my brothers and sisters. And so I was like, you know what? If I follow down, the, if, I, if I am in some sense hoping for a certain outcome from the majority culture, and I don't get that outcome, and I get frustrated, I see what it did to people's hearts and souls. And so yeah. I just didn't want to become someone who was broken by being disappointed with the church. So yeah. I said from the beginning my ministry is much more like, you know what? This is, this is what God has told me as best as I can discern it from reading the scriptures, listening to other voices. This is what I think God has told me. And the people who think this is what God has told you, and if you, if you, if you vibe with it and you want to move, let's move. If you don't want to be about that, then, you know, God bless y'all. God bless y'all. Hmm. And we're going to see, right? I, I tell people, all bills eventually become due. All bills. Hmm. So you can you trust me, I grew I grew up broke. You can deduct the creditor, but they will eventually hunt you down. <laughs> and so the ways in which we're living and moving and acting right now has consequences. Yeah. And so when I say we have to talk about it, how we're seeing it. So let me tell you something. When you have a lie, when you have a lie, and maybe y'all don't got kids, y'all y'all got kids, y'all don't got kids. I don't. Okay. So when you wrong, when you wrong with a parent, and you know you're wrong. All you can do is you either have to admit that you're wrong, right? I'm sorry, I overreacted. Or you can use your power to enforce your wrongness. 
Mm. Yo, go to your room. But now once you do that, that relationship is no longer based upon truth. It's based upon power. And so when you have a society that is living lies, and that lie is pushed, is kept in place by power, you're enforcing the lie, then you destroy it all basis of the community. Yeah. It's not rooted in truth. It's rooted in a lie. So what I'm saying is if you're living in a society that's consistently built upon a lie, as a Christian, all you got to do is tell the truth. Yeah. And whether or not they accept that truth is not your responsibility. And we get caught up in people aren't listening to the truth. Like, listen, man, you've done your job. And it's very important for Christians, if you're going to make it from one end or the other in this country, in this America, or as a black person, bro, you got to have a community of people who you can't, you got to have a community of people who, who, who understand it the way that you understand it and who can support you that you can commute, you can retreat to. So I got people who, you know what, y'all don't, the internet doesn't see everything that I think. Y'all think y'all do. Mm-hmm. I get my text fingers shooting out. I say, you know what, man, this is going on. Call me, pull up, and we could talk it through. Because I can't sit and spend all of my time arguing with people. Say, you should do this. And then they just yell it at me. And next thing you know, I feel crazy. I'm frustrated. I'm bitter. And then I become angry. The internet is not going to steal the joy of the Lord from me. So I have real boundaries. That's good. Good. Um, as you, as you heard, you know, Clay, you know, just to sort of articulate a lot of that frustration, you know, uh, I get frustrated I, too now. I get, yeah, I, I get yeah. in my feelings. Y'all just don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and we're in a point right now, I think, um, and just what we're seeing in society, you know, where it's extremely frustrating to be, you know, and, and this is nothing new. I'm not trying to say we're in a, in a context where particularly new things are happening. Uh, but I think for our generation, um, it's, it's been particularly challenging these last, you know, few years. Um, and that frustration, sometimes when you look to certain leaders, Christian leaders, to, to sort of interpret the Bible to help us deal with that frustration and not really seeing it. Um, so I just want to ask you, how would you say that the Bible speaks to our black anger, our frustration? Uh, because a lot, I think there are a lot of black folk who are getting angry and look, looking at Christianity and going, this is insufficient to answer the, the, the issues that I'm dealing with right now. And quite frankly, a lot of people are leaving the church because of it, turning to different religions or whatever the case may be. And so what would you say to someone, like, how, would you, how do you feel like the, the Bible speaks to this anger, this frustration that we feel? Yeah, I, um, the, probably one of the trickier chapters that I wrote in the book was called, the, What Should I Do With This Anger? I think that's what I called yeah. um, the, what the Bible has to say about black anger. Yeah. And what I, what I wanted to do was actually put my finger exactly on that question. And the way that the chapter is structured and this is what I call it the ticket to the party. In some African-American context, rightly so, they're not going to listen to anything that you got to say unless they know that you feel it the way that they feel it. Mm. Right? If you don't understand what is actually happening, this is what happens in a lot of pastors who can't minister to um, their black brothers and sisters. Unless you can understand what is actually happening and you can articulate the reasons behind it, and you're not going to be able to effectively minister to it. So that's the first thing I would say. And then what I tried to say in the chapter is 
the Bible is not un is not like ignorant to the rage of the oppressed. Yeah. Right? The people of Israel were people who were colonized and deported from their families, who experienced economic and political exploitation. And if you read the Psalms, you see the Psalms talking about corporate and interpersonal frustration, right? Yeah. May his may his whole family catch the plague and may all his kids <laughs> die. All of this stuff that you see, and you're like, why would somebody say all that in the Bible? Bro, imagine, this is what I talk about in the book, imagine what some black person who's experiencing Jim Crow, who's who goes to the grocery store, goes to the ice cream shop, and they're having a day with their kids, and somebody just comes up and completely humiliates a, a mother or a father in front of their children. Maybe takes their ice cream and throws it on them. And there's nothing you can do, but you got to eat it because it's Jim mm -hmm. Crow. If you say something, they can pull up at your house. You just got to eat it. Mm -hmm. Well, then what kind of rage builds in your soul? And mm -hmm. if that person went home when they wrote a psalm and they prayed to God, what kind of prayer would they offer? So the Bible depicts people who have been deeply wounded by injustice corporately and personally, and the Bible records that. And so for the, for the black person who says, I feel these frustrations, you need to understand that God can handle your anger. But what mm -hmm. I tried to say also, though, is that the miracle of the Bible, the miracle of the Bible, the miracle of the Bible in the Old and the New Testament is that it, does, it, it imagines more than just the vengeance upon your enemies. It imagines, and this is the amazing thing, that Israel imagines the salvation of the Gentiles. The mm. former enemies can become friends. And so to be a Christian means not simply God's going to take vengeance, but there's something on the other side of justice. Being a Christian doesn't mean I experience injustice, therefore I just forgive my enemies because I'm a Christian. No, no, no. A Christian can say, God is displeased with what you have done to me. And I want justice, but justice isn't the end. There's this Howard Thurman, there's this Howard Thurman chapter on, on anger that I found super helpful. He said that once you start and anger, it's good for motivated action. But once that fire starts burning, it tends to burn down more than just the object of your anger. Mm -hmm. So when you start off hating someone who oppresses you and that hatred gets in your heart, it turns other people. It's like my mom. Like when I was, if I was messing around and one of us got in trouble, my mama got mad. If you just happen to fall through, you was in trouble. Like I didn't even do anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, but once you get hot, right? Or you have anyone that had a rough day at work, and then they come home, and the next thing you know, you're taking it out on the person who's just closest to you. Anger has this ability to be destructive, and so the Bible doesn't just say yes, it's okay to be angry. It gives you a way to get to the other side of anger so that anger doesn't actually destroy you. Because we all know that the black soul can be distorted mm. by this deep frustration with injustice. And so the Bible both gives us like the means by which we can acknowledge our anger. Through the cross, it gives us a way of like uh, beginning to understand what forgiveness might look like at, at great cost. And through the long-term work of the Spirit, it helps us to be the kinds of people who can do better than simply take revenge. Because otherwise, you're in a cycle of violence. Unless you want to say, like, if power corrupts, right? Power corrupts. What happens if we get in power? Mm. Unless God mm. does something to us. And mm -hmm. so I want to say, and you got to read the rest of the, the, the chapter in the book where I, where I lay it out. But what I want to say is that, like, 
The Bible knows black frustration. Hmm. The Bible knows and cares about, and God cares about justice for the oppressed. But God has something to say on the other side of that justice. And on the other side of that justice is no for reconciliation. Otherwise, let's burn the thing to the ground now, right? You look at America, and it's like we're, we're coming apart at the seams. And are we going to say, you know what, let me just get mine before this whole thing burns to the ground? Or is there going to be a vision for something that comes after? Uh, thank you um, just for your time. Once again, man, the book is called Reading While Black. Uh, there's so many uh, chapters. I mean, you got chapters in there talking about um, Romans 13 and a place of, you know, uh, submitting to authorities. Uh, th- does that mean that we just simply just submit? I mean, there's so many things that we didn't talk about in terms of justice and, you know, the place of uh, seeking justice um, and, and, and us submitting to the government. Because uh, what you do is when you, when you talk about the importance of Black biblical interpretation, you then go through, you know, yeah, asking quiet. and answering some very important uh, questions. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I didn't want to do, because maybe I have a little bit of ADHD, I hate books about method. It yeah. just talks about the thing. I say, no, 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 no. You get one, cha- well, kind of two chapters. The bonus track and the first chapter are about how I came to having my method. But what I really thought was the proof was in the pudding. You know, and yeah. so let me, let me cook for a little bit and see if people identify with it. Yeah. And so hopefully, and, and, and the point of that also was, to allow even like other other readers, like, you know, non-black readers or even black readers who, you know, obviously care about the scriptures, so they can engage and actually see this is what he's meaning when he actually puts it into practice. Yeah, that's I wanted good. to talk about something and then model it as best as I could. So I'm glad that you appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, each one of those chapters, we could do a podcast episode on each, just each one of the chapters. There's so much to talk about. Um, and hopefully at some point in the future, we can have you back on to even dive deeper into it. But you just wanted to whet your appetite. Uh, this book, we, you know, we, we highly, highly um, recommend. Um, for those who are asking questions that you don't seem to possibly be hearing from your favorite preachers, a lot of these answers to these questions, or wondering whether or not the Bible speaks to justice issues very deeply. You know, this is a book I think that really uh, brings some great insights because I, listen, I got a seminary education and the way you were interpreting a lot of these passages, I never heard. I had never heard of how you dealt with Romans 13 and a lot of these things. So it was educational for me. You know, and I don't get to say that about a lot of books because oh, I heard I heard this already, you know, so I'm not just saying it, you know, so I would recommend people really look at this book um, because I think it really helps us to come, you know, to, to, to look at some of the chapters that we've been reading for years and to see answers to a lot of the questions that we've been struggling with for years. So, well, yeah. thank you. Uh, that's going to be it for us. Uh, this is Bryant, the Theological Giant, signing out. Um, I thank you, uh, Esau, for, uh, for, for being with us, brother. Anytime. City Image.